Hi, I'm Ingrid Kohler. And I'm Jonathan Carwest. And this is LGIU Fortnightly. So, Jonathan, this is your first time on the podcast. First time on the pod. I'm very excited. <laughs> you should be. I know. Listeners, uh, we won't tell listeners the undignified amount of cajoling, pleading, and uh, wheedling that I did to let you, to make you let me on the pod. <laughs> but I, I'm sure, I'm sure that it will be all wonderful and uh, fantastic. New um, initiatives spoil. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you've, you've been on, on TV a lot lately and talking about finance. I have. Always talking about um, imminent disaster. Yeah. But But we're going to be talking about elections today and I'm really excited about this. This is the part of the year where I get super, super excited and rather geekily excited about elections and elections data. You do. I do. It's true. It's true. We all do here, I suppose, but maybe you a little bit extra. Also, we have published in uh, last week and this week, uh, our two elections guides. Yep, so um, that's one on communications. Yep. And one on what we call ones to watch, so what we think some of the big stories that might come out of these elections could be. So I I did the um, communications guide one, and it covers both a kind of general overview of how to manage elections communications, um, but with a little bit of emphasis on that kind of open data and the importance of, of making it a lot easier to get the information about both candidates and results. First, let's, um, let's hear a bit from a discussion between you and Peter Stanion, who's the chief executive of the Association of Electoral Administrators, who are the ones who keep our democracy running. With pencils. With pencils. I'm joined today by Peter Stanion, who's the chief executive of the Association of Electoral Administrators. Yes. Um, yes, always important to get these acronyms <laughs> right. Um, now, Peter, Peter has written a blog for as part of our election coverage, Peter's written a blog for us over the, the last couple of years talking about what it's like to be an electoral administrator. And Peter, I have to tell you, both years, your blog has been our single most popular blog by a long way. So it clearly resonates with people. People want to know what the kind of human story behind elections is. And I guess that's where I wanted to open up the conversation, because as citizens, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty seamless process. I mean, sometimes things go wrong and there's a huge fuss about it, but for most of us, we turn up, put our cross on the, on the ballot paper and off we go, and it all just kind of works. What's happening behind the scenes that we're unaware of? It is about the unsung heroes of democracy, because it is... I think it's the point you're making about it being a big machine. It is a big machine on the day. It comes down to effectively a huge project of getting lots of temporary individuals, lots of actually very engaged local government, outside of local government individuals involved. You'll see them at polling stations. You'll see them with the little finger cones counting, uh, ballot papers that counts and things like that. But behind the scenes, it really is quite a small operation. And, and when it comes down to it, in every single every local authority will have a very small, dedicated band of individuals. So, what what what's the? I was going to say, what keeps you up, what keeps you awake at night before before mm. before an election? You're probably not sleeping much in the, in the, <laughs> in the immediate run up to the election. But what are the, you know, if you're in charge, what are the main things, the main sort of pinch points, the things that could go wrong that you need to be looking out for? Uh, best way to describe it is a project that cannot have movable deadlines. So, any milestones in that project. They, they have to go ahead. Where are you? You've got the obvious things like you need 
I would always, I've always said that the time between 6.15 in the morning and quarter to seven in the morning. So it's a half hour window. In the half hour window on polling day is the worst possible time to talk to me. <laughs> I taught Gordon Ramsay words that you would never believe he knew. <laughs> Simply because you are, by that particular point, you are in the hands of those volunteers. A former chief executive of mine said to me, if you put it in context... The democratic systems in the UK rely on a caretaker getting out of bed half an hour earlier than they would normally do to open that church hall, to open that school. And that is the real worry point for an administrator. It all pinch points into that moment. Once you hit seven o'clock in the morning, well, it's too late by that point. It's off and running and all your plans, hopefully, are coming into fruition. And you're relying on a a large group of volunteers of varying levels of experience, Mm. have no... degree of control over them is limited. Yeah. So that must be incredibly stressful. I was just wondering, can you tell us about what what's the what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on, a, on election day? What's the what's the sort of biggest problem you had to solve? Um, with the London mayoral elections, the there are three counts, um, and there's a transfer of ballot boxes needed to from the individual locations to the three uh, counts. Uh, we haven't got chains and padlocks to lock the. Uh, the, the, the Royal Mail Yorks in which the ballot box were being transferred in, so it's just simple security. So at two o'clock in the morning, um, strangely enough, two or three of us were in Tesco Extra, I think it was, or somewhere of a, a equal place. Other supermarkets, are, Other supermarkets available. are available. Asking for chains and padlocks of all things and getting some very strange looks from the staff who were working there, but nothing untoward other than the fact that it was something that had been <laughs> forgotten. So, electoral administrators, resourceful people, if you, if you ever... <laughs> If you ever have a, a problem that needs solving, there you'll go to guys. Absolutely. If you asked any electoral administrator around the, the UK, there will have been instances on polling day where it's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. It's about how you react to that. But I was told off by, by um, a coach I spoke to when I said, when it goes wrong, this is how we react with it. And she said to me, well, why are you using the word when? It's if it goes wrong. I said, you've clearly never worked in a democratic structure. So when you talk about <clears throat> people being the unsung heroes... Mm-hmm. In a sense, that's how you want it to be. What you're saying is Absolutely. Like, the more unsung, the better, because we don't want to notice anything about this, because that means it's gone wrong. It's, it's, it's ironic, actually, because we, we, we're talking here about the, the local elections. Um, the local elections is just part of that job. It's the registration sure. side. Actually, with the changes that have been brought back in, in the last two, three years with individual electoral registration rolling out, greater access online for, for electors, absolutely fantastic. The electors are in the middle of the process. When you look at the way elections and the electoral registration system are delivered in the UK, it's based on 19th century legislation with things morphed on the top. So registration tends to have taken over a lot of the preparatory work that, that used to be, in, in the good old days, shall we say, uh, probably not the right words to use, but it used to be six months registration, six months elections. Now it runs right up to polling day itself. So there's been a fundamental shift in the skill sets of administrators against the traditional stresses, strains, pressures that need to be there to deliver the election. So tell us a bit more about how how has the administration of elections changed over the last couple of years and, and what, what challenges does that create? What extra pressures does that create? Probably two, twofold. One, as I mentioned, it's the, the, the fundamental shift has gone that registration is seeping into the elections process. That means that... Um, the self-same people who will be making sure that that school hall is open, that the staff are in place, that postal votes have gone out on time, candidates are being dealt with through nominations, are the same people who will be dealing with the request from an elector for an absent voting form or, or actually to get on the registers. That's seeped into the whole of the process and fundamentally shifted it to more of a 
um, a factory type process than it being um, uh, the, the more um, touchy feel process I suppose it used to be. But it's also the pressures that have been felt throughout the whole local government is that um, with the uh, reduction in resources available with smaller teams, the individuals who are delivering it, one will be in much smaller teams with, with, with less redundancy within those teams to be able to cope where issues arise. But also, wiser than that, is the fact that they can't call on the resources from elsewhere within the local authority or rely on those resources because either they, they're no longer delivered by, directly by the local authority or they're not delivered at all, or those individuals have, 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 uh, who, who were prepared to get involved cannot now get involved because of the pressure of their day and their nine-to-five job, effectively. So. But yeah, it's the sort of challenge that... Uh, the industry faces to make sure they've got the right quality as well as quantity of individuals to be able to do that. It goes back to that point I mentioned earlier about that last 15 minutes you get to 7 o'clock, you've got to have that absolute confidence of the person in charge of that station to deliver what the returning officer effectively needs them to do. And how do you see it changing? So you talked about registration having changed over the last couple of years. I mean, for most of us, the process is still a sort of mm-hmm. 19th century process. You go in with a pencil and you put a cross on a piece of paper and you put it in a little slot. Yeah, yeah we have postal voting, but people have talked about you know, electronic voting. Do you envisage any of that starting to happen? I don't there have s- been some pilots, haven't there? there well, the, there have been there were pilots uh, in the early 2000s and they tested various electronic voting, for example. Other pilot methods, weekend voting was tested as well, which... Uh, I was involved in. We lost eight percent on the turnout. I remember. Oh, really? It was, just, it was one of those simple. Uh, um, couldn't never quite work it out. Except it was the hottest weekend I think of the year. And uh, gazing out at the pub garden, I'd rather have been there than actually sat in the office delivering the election at that time. Mm. But but they they have tried things out. I think whatever system is rolled out needs to be trusted by the public, trusted by the candidate. At the moment, with the paper and pencil, um, we had pencil gate. You know. In, um, you know, our crosses being changed, etc. I was going to ask you about this. Yeah. But, it's, it, you know, to, to any administrator, it's almost like laughable because the system is there with all the checks and balances in place. And the, the crazy thing about Pencilgate is that the, why are pencils used is because back in the 19th century, there weren't biros. And when you think about some of the locations that use as polling stations, I was always taught on geography field trips, write in pencil, not in pen, because pencils will always work when it's raining. So it's that, that is, there's nothing untoward, there's nothing more grandiose than that. So this is a really banal, from, from, the, kind of, from the, the grandiose to the banal, um, <laughs> I've always wondered, does someone go in and sharpen the pencils periodically? And if so, how often? Generally speaking, uh, that will be one of the tasks when the, uh, when the boxes are prepared, so they, will, they should all be sharpened pencils, but it is a duty of the presiding officer and the power clerk. And one of the things they have to do uh, so it may, may sound banal, but is <laughs> one of the implements they have in their polling stations is a pencil sharpener. Yeah. Um, the keyboard being making sure it's one with the big hole in it because yeah. you need that for the large and pencil. And so somewhere there has to be a list and a checklist and someone saying, have we made sure we've got a pencil sharpener with a big hole? You would be amazed at these sort of rather, I say, uh, in-depth conversations that are taken about how much blue tack do you sending, how long is the piece of string, what do you do? The, but that's all in the preparation. So that's, that's a couple of the sort of challenges that are yeah. emerging. Are there any other things kind of coming over the horizon that, that give you cause, that make you, that you're thinking about, worrying about? I think the, the sort of, on the wider government agenda, is, is, is uh, certainly around the five pilots taking place for voter ID 
and they're varying ways with three additional ones being done for postal voting as well. well. Remind me where those are. There's one in there's one in London, isn't there? You've got Bromley in London. Um, you have and this is you've tested me now and put me on the spot. Gosport, um, Slough is running. Actually, Watford is running a pilot. Swindon, right? Um, Tower Hamps is running a postal voting pilot. Peterborough. I'm sure there's one that I forgot. Okay, so it's quite a lot of change. I mean, it's not a static system, is it? No, it does change. No, it does change because uh, this this, this came out of the Sarah Pickles review into electoral fraud, which followed on from the issues four years ago now in in Tower Hamlets. Uh, Yeah. The the main issue is that, you know, the British system of voting is based on trust and always has been. It's whether that is now correct is, is the challenge that government is setting. So... From our perspective, it's a case of making sure that for those five areas and the three postal pilot areas, does it work? Does it does it work for the elector? Does it work for the administrator? So there's a very sensible approach being taken to rolling that out. Whether it is the thing to do is a completely different argument, and that's sure. a political arg- argument. But the approach is really to see what is the sensible median approach to take for the stated intention is to roll that out for national polls in the future. And that's what's being tested. You know, will it work in terms of no one really knows what the outcome's going to be. So, so one of the one of the things we'll be assessing in that, I yeah. guess, is what impact it has on turnout. Yeah. I mean turnout more generally is one of the things that people always raise with us when we talk about yeah. local elections in particular, where where turnout right I mean we're unapologetic at LJU, we think turnout in local elections is far too low. Yeah. We'd like to see it much, much higher. You know, it's currently hovers in the th- somewhere in the 30s. Do you see that as, how far as electoral administrators do you see that as, as part of your job to, to try and push that up? And, and what can we do about it? It's a difficult one. I think, I think um, electoral administrators, like return officers, registration officers, have a duty to ensure there is access to the system. But when it comes to actually driving the people through the door, that really needs to be from the polit- well, the candidate side of it, whether that be political parties or independents or whatever the case may be. So let's talk about candidates. I mean, obviously a large part of, a large part of our audience uh, at LJU are, are councillors, um, mm. many of whom will be, will be standing for election yeah. again in a few weeks' time. Perhaps some tips. How should candidates seek to be sort of managing their relationship with electoral administrators? Should they be, should they be engaging with them? Should they be sort of leaving them alone? What's the, what's the sort of protocol that you'd like to see? There have been untold examples of where misinformation, the, the incorrect message being given on, on a doorstep, simply through good grace, it's not because yeah. of no, not sure. understanding the new system. Um, sure. It's about engaging with the administrator to understand that this is the process that you follow. Send them online to register and it will all kick into the system. So you would encourage candidates to have a conversation with yeah. the chief returning to make sure that they've been having the conversations with with electoral administrators to know what they should and should not be doing, to Absolutely. be clear around yeah. the sort of you know, code of conduct in terms of communications in the yeah. Because all of that, we get a lot of questions yeah. like that from councillors saying, I don't quite know what I can and can't do. A lot of it comes down to just simply being aware of what the, the, the rights and the wrongs are of the system. You know, clearly, political campaigning is down to, to those individuals. If local campaigns are taking place to register people by one or other of the parties, let the administrator know. Because suddenly if there's an influx in applications, they can resource up for that. So the key message for candidates is you can talk to electoral administrators, you should talk to yep. them, you're encouraging you know, ask the question, pick yep. up the phone, go and see them, don't be afraid to don't be afraid to ask. You're better there's no such thing as a stupid question. question. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really important because we hear a lot of people yeah. worrying about that. 
one of the things we've worked on a lot at LJU is around the kind of information that people have about about elections and about sort of local politics and results. Uh, one of the things we find constantly surprising and, if we're honest, a little disappointing is how bad some councils are at putting, you know, just at saying what's happened, at putting results of who's won, what party they belong to, which party now controls the council. And so we've done a lot of work around kind of open data and, and sort of data standards for the reporting of this. What do you think we need to be careful of in that conversation? You know, what's the opportunity to kind of have more open access to data and what are the risks? The biggest challenge is really making sure the right information is out there. There is no requirement to publish electronically. The only requirement for a returning officer for anything is to take up a notes board outside the town hall. That goes back to our archaic 19th uh, century basis of law. And with things such as the um, GDPR data protection coming through, there, there's a very much more of an awareness of not having personal detail out there that's not necessary for that particular election. So. Um, it's a difficult one to sort of get an answer to. I think if you, again, from an administrator's perspective, they will be asked requests for information from numerous sources. Um, there's a phrase that we like to use in our world, there needs to be a clicky button on the computer to spit out in the format that then is used by everybody in the, the open format that we're talking about. The debate then comes about how much of that, the, the, the personal element of that data needs to be spat out. Um, because if anything that you can stop, those telephone calls, those emails, those requests for information coming to that small core team, um, and ultimately wider than that, the council generally, has got to be seen as a benefit so long as it doesn't trip into them becoming something that would affect the election result on that side. So it's a very woolly answer. No, but this um, gets us into the, you know, some of the big questions around democracy. Yeah. Openness versus privacy, yeah. transparency versus... Yeah, these are really difficult things. Yeah. It feels to me that we're starting to work it through. Yes. But we're having to work it through in real time, in public, in, yeah. in a system that we can't get wrong. So, yeah. again, is that one of the challenges that your members are sort of grappling with? One of the big questions that's always asked is, can you tell us who the candidates are? That question is asked at one of the most pressurised periods for an administrator because you've got to get the ballot papers printed. It sounds like a crazy thing. Sure. There's the proofing. Parliamentary elections are straightforward. You're doing one, one ballot paper with five names on it. It's quite easy to check that when you're dealing with 21 wards and 15 candidates on each of them, it becomes a big thing. They then get asked that information. It's the information that should be in the public domain and it will be technically because it'll be on that notice board outside the town hall. That doesn't satisfy the wider access to that. So it's that balancing act. I think it's a baby step process to get to somewhere that actually satisfies that demand for as much as information as can be released as against actually what can realistically be delivered in the timescales that run around an election. And with the resources and available. And with the resources available, absolutely. So we opened our conversation by talking a bit about the kind of the human the human side of this, and the, 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 that sort of stress between 6.15 and 6.45. Yeah. I mean, to, to close off, what would you most want the public to know as they walk into the ballot box? What's the one message you'd like to get across to them? You, have, you can have complete trust in the system. I talked about that half-hour period before the poll. That's on the back of that six-month period of, uh, and, and I've said it in previous in the previous blogs around the family life is put on hold for these individuals who are working and you know burning the midnight oil. All the way through that is because those individuals want to deliver an accurate result. They want to ensure electors are able to access their democratic right as easily as possible, and you can trust what they're doing. 
because at the end of the day, they, they deliver a superb system. And are people allowed to sort of bring them a muffin or a cup of tea or something, or is that is that outside the rules? Uh, I guess it, it comes within there. Well, is that bribery and corruption? I'm not quite sure, but uh, a smile will be plenty. Okay, a smile is plenty. <laughs> Peter Stanley, thank you very much. Pleasure. So that was really interesting. It was. I mean, it was a fascinating, and, and you know, it was. It was. That's only part of a much longer conversation. And I guess, I guess for me, yeah, it's that. It's, it's that weird kind of dichotomy that this sort of democracy, in many ways, one of the most sort of beautiful ideas created uh, by humans. You know, one of the the ways in which we, we drive progress and prosperity and well-being and dignity. And yet it all depends on, on someone opening a building, on someone making sure there's the right type of pencil sharpener. The big hole. The big right? hole. Not just any pencil. You know, you've got to have the right pen. And I just, that just really kind of, I just thought that was fascinating. The, the, the sort of, I guess the kind of the collision of the, of the most kind of high-flown ideals of, of, sort of human civilization and the really mundane practicalities and how one depends on the other, the materiality of it all. With- I thought it was... It is fascinating. And, and getting back to that kind of data issue as well. So one of the mundane things that I will be doing on the, I believe, the 9th of April, the evening of the 9th of April, is actually taking all those PDFs, you know, the, the list of candidates who are, who are running, and which was once posted outside the town hall, now is posted in a PDF on the council websites as well, but needs to really be an open data. And Democracy Club and other people have been working to basically take that PDF information and put it into open data. So look, tell us about this, because this is something that you are very passionate about, that we at LGIU are very passionate about. You've just published our communications guide for the local elections. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's in that guide? But also talk us through, when we talk about open data, why does that matter? What's, why is that so important? Okay, so first I'll just run through what's in the guide. So the guide covers both before the election, on the day itself, and then after the election with results. And it covers what you can and can't do with a little bit of reference to Perda communications and things like that, but it also makes reference to In case our colleague Janet is listening, we do know that it's not technically called Perda. It's not technically called Perda. It's pre-election communication or communication during periods of heightened sensitivity, which doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily as Perda. Noted, but we will stick with Perda for old school for the sake of this conversation. Indeed. So, um... Can't take Perda away from us. No, that's the last straw so anyway we do cover the open data stuff so why why is this important so why why does it matter if this stuff is easily findable which stuff are we talking tell people which what do you mean really basic bits of information who the candidate is what ward that kind of information so who the candidates are that's currently locked in really hard to find documents on council websites And the reason that that matters is that citizens can have a look at that and they can actually start to crowdsource things like social media presence, what kind of leaflets and election communications that there is. And that's so, so, so important for local elections in particular because there's so many councillors. And with the decline of local journalism and local newspapers, it's really important that citizens are kind of finding this this stuff out for themselves. 
And then when it comes to the, the final piece of the data that you need is the results, of course, after polling day, not before. Um, and that's important because many, many elections are surprisingly close. So five, 10 votes in it. And why that matters is for one, you know, you, if you're a candidate or a party worker, you know, like a few more doors knocked on and you could have won it. But it also says to citizens, this isn't a done deal. There's every reason for you to go out and yeah. vote and yeah. get your voice heard. And then finally, if we want more different kind of people to run for, for council, and we love councillors, but let's face it, they're slightly older and maler and, and wider than maybe the population as a whole. And if we want councils that reflect our populations, we need to get more of those kind of people running and younger people running. And they need to know that the seats are winnable. And in a lot of places, they really, really are winnable. That's why we need to know that, that information. And this doesn't have to be hard. So we already collect this data. It's simply a question of publishing it in a different way than we do now. So we publish it as PDFs. I'm not saying you should stop that. But we could also publish it as just data that's machine-readable and findable and understandable by humans. So what are we calling for people to do? If you're sitting out there you're in a council, you've heard what you're saying, yes, I get that, I want to do it. So the first thing that we'd, we'd, I'd like for to see people do is make your statements of persons nominated, which is just the list of candidates, make that really easily findable. So either a link from your council homepage, or if that's not possible, from the council and democracy page or whatever it is that you are calling it. It would be amazing if that data was published as a, a CSV, which is basically like a, a generic Excel file, um, because then it's more usable data. But if you can't do that, don't worry about that. Then on election day itself, what I would love to see people doing, or when the results come in, is that that information is then published as either that CSV file with that link from the council's homepage and or if that's not possible from the council and democracy page. And finally, please, please, please show us if there's been a change of control or control has stayed the same in politics. We shouldn't be ashamed. Councils are political organizations. Let's not shy away from saying that we've retained conservative control or labor control or it's changed from one party to another. Let's let people know who which party is making most decisions in their council. Yeah, vitally important. You can go onto our website and get our, that communications guide. Absolutely. That's not that's not just for LJU members. That's an open document. It's an absolutely an open document. So anyone who's having elections can can go to our website, download that guide, and start putting that into practice. Absolutely. And if any data should be open data and local government, surely it's democracy data. Um, we have another guide out. This week as well, which is our ones to watch guide, ones to watch. which is very exciting. That's for political junkies as well as uh, communicators. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's for it's for interested citizens. It's for interested it? citizens. I mean, look, do you think? I was going to ask you, do you think? Uh, you know, we've been banging on about local elections for years and years, and we stay up all night and we do the. It's really fun. We do live coverage of them. You know, we're the quickest and most comprehensive results service for for local government. Sometimes that feels a little bit lonely. Yeah, you know, we don't see that much in the national press about local government. When we do, it tends to see it purely through the through the prism of what it 
tells us about national politics, mm-hmm. which I think is in some ways the wrong way round. I kind of get a sense that it's rising up the agenda a bit. I think it that, is. Yeah. I, I, I think, not to, you know, not to be too big-headed about it, but I think we can take some of the credit for that. Well, I'm going to take all of the credit. For no, that. I don't know if we can take all of the credit. But, um, but we can certainly take some of the credit for that because we have been really plugging away at trying to get people excited about local elections, which are actually really exciting things anyway. Um, and to say, and in that kind of live coverage, there are people looking at our maps and our information that we published online, I think a couple of years ago when we did, we, we did a map, the, the change of control map, we had like 100,000 hits. No, it was yeah. more than that. More it was than that. more, 150. And so people are really quite, it's rising up the agenda. But I think there's more stories in the press now about local government in general. It feels that way. I particularly around right. this kind of finance thing, which is exactly what we yeah, should be doing sure. because local government is the government that actually has you know, the most influence over your everyday life. The stuff you care about on an everyday level. And people are starting to cotton on to that and say, well, yes, and this stuff really, really matters. Um, and I think so- that's right. I feel I talk to more, to more national journalists, many more national journalists now than I used to, who are all kind of catching up with that idea. As, as, as they should. Yeah. Okay, so we've got elections coming up. They're getting a bit of traction. What's happening? We've got 32 London boroughs mm-hmm. all out. All out. Everyone up for election. We've got a few metropolitan boroughs all out. I think Birmingham, Leeds, Manchester and Newcastle. And then quite a lot of Mets in thirds. So what are the big stories here? I mean, I guess a lot of focus. I mean, we try very hard at LJU not to be, you know, we're a national organisation and we don't like to focus solely on London. But I think London is going to be one of the big stories. Well, it is. I mean, year. it is a big story. It's yeah. all out elections. It's all 32. And I think there's... Um, and we could see some changes, right? We could see some changes, yeah. So many people have been talking about the potential for some pretty... Uh, what people have imagined is conservative councils are, yeah, they've been conservative councils for a really long time. So we're talking about places like Kensington and Chelsea, Westminster. Like, Wandsworth, like Westminster. I mean, I, I live in Wandsworth and, it, you know, the entire time I've lived there, I, it's been conservative control by a long way. And the, the idea of this tipping over um, into to Labour is you know, would have been unfathomable uh, yeah. four years ago, yeah. even. So We could also see, I think, Kingston, Hillingdon could all be at risk. Yeah. So there's some really interesting analysis yeah. in, in this publication around part of the reason why conservative councils in particular are vulnerable this election, and it's to do with the size of their majorities and just which bits of, of councils in which parts of the country are up for election this year. But I think people, all eyes will be on London um, from the national press. Um, that will be the big yeah. story. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, a lot of people were predicting a sort of red wash in London. I guess it will be interesting in you know, the Labour Party's not had a good couple of weeks in the, in the no. national media. Will that have any impact? Will we see that slowing down? Hard to tell. It's not just the it's not just the national media. I think there's some internal labor politics which may come into play well, here. See, I think well. this is the other big story. It's not just it's not just you know, is it labor or conservative. It's which time. So we've seen you know strong strong showings from the left of the Labour Party in particularly in Haringey, particularly in Newham, and I think you know, we could see that in other parts of the capital. So. 
So actually, even those places where they're sort of labour and have been labour for a long time and will stay labour, that doesn't mean that the situation is static, that there won't see any changes, there won't be any differences in policy, in particularly around some of the key areas that people uh, really care about. So regeneration, you know, economic development. Actually, we could see quite a lot of change. We, we could see change, um, but we won't see the change immediately because it'll go from red to red and people won't necessarily be able to see what kind of, what shade of red it is. Um, and this is part of the reason why we need those, that really good data around around candidates and around results to look at that. But it could be if there are internal party wranglings that could distract Labour from really pushing that kind of red wash that they were hoping for in some of the other boroughs. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Okay, so that's London, a big story. You know, there's other there's other Mets that are out, Manchester, Leeds, etc. Not unlikely to see much change there. I guess the question in, in a lot of the rest of the country will be: Are we sort of adding to Labour majorities and at what sort of scale? Uh, you've got places like Trafford and Solihull, where you yeah a big, a big swing to Labour could see changes of control. Um, I don't think it's even that. Doesn't even need to be that big of a swing in Trafford, uh, although Solihull is a slightly different story. Um, it could be. Third, with third parties, say Solihull has a has a big green presence there. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the story that I want to sort of bring out of this, though, as we go in, get further into the election period, is is you know the way in which a lot of people will talk about this, and and you know there's always a temptation to say, well, is it swing to Labour? Is it swing? What does that tell us about the bigger political scene? What does it tell us about what might happen in the general election? By the way, not much, actually, because if you look, if you go back to last year. Yeah. Whoa, Whoa. big conservative gains. In the local elections, and what, six weeks later, you know, a, a, a general election that was incredibly close. So so I think we need to be a bit cautious about the idea that, and I think it's an illustration of how we, we should be cautious about the idea that, that local politics simply reflects, and unproblematically reflects national politics, because I don't think it does. It Things doesn't, can change. no. But what's really important is what does that mean for... The services that people are going to get, the way in which their councillors are going to deliver services, the sorts of decisions that their councils are going to make at a time when councils are still taking really big decisions about 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 cuts. You know, they're still taking massive amounts of money out of their budgets. They're still thinking about the way in which they commission services and the sort of, the sorts of bodies through which they deliver those services. So there's a lot of kind of local, and it feels to me that's what gets lost in the conversation if we just say, oh, is this about Jeremy Corbyn versus Theresa May? It's not. They're not on the ballot boxes, and actually, the ballot papers, and actually what happens in, the, in those ballots will determine the way in which local areas are shaped. And that's the conversation we, I mean, this goes back to your data point, I know, but that, it seems to me, is the conversation that we need to be pushing. And that local government needs to be standing up for itself and saying, look, you know, this is about shaping the future of your area. And, and, and never at a more important time. I, going back to the finance issue, um, we know that local government is on the verge of financial crisis and some councils have already fallen prey to that. But when you're in that situation, who is making those decisions right. about budget absolutely matters even more than sure. in good times. Particularly when there's a risk that those decisions actually get taken away from local democratic mm -hmm. control. You know, that's, that's what's at stake. So just to kind of wrap up our election stuff, and we'll be talking about elections even more in the podcast. Endlessly. And on the, uh, yeah, well, until, you know, sometime after the 3rd of May. Oh, yeah. um, That's right. As Peter Stanley said, it is, a, it is a project with immovable deadlines. Absolutely. So we will be coming back to this. 
But I think it's worth just highlighting that, you know, we've got those election publications, they're on the website, and we will be keeping updating you on other election stuff and support for councils uh, running elections. We've got a couple of elections briefings. One is around that uh, pre-election publicity, or PERDA, as it should not be known. And the, that is exclusive LJU member content. And then also a really interesting briefing about intimidation uh, yeah. for can- for candidates um, and councillors in, in elections. Um, again, that's members-only content, but an increasing concern. So we might revisit that. I think we... Yeah, I mean, it's a depressingly, this is a conversation that, that we seem to find ourselves having much more these days. And I think one of the, you know, we have found that local politics, like national politics, like global politics, has become, how do we put this, a less civil place, perhaps, over the last couple of years. And, you know, instances, reported instances of intimidation and, you know, really quite bad behaviour towards candidates seem to be going up. And, you know, I think that's really, we really need to get to grips with that because, you know, we talked about democracy depending on information, but of course it depends on participation as well. And, and whatever people may think of individual candidates or, 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 or of their councillors, you know, if there weren't any, if people are not willing to put themselves forward to do this, if people just say, look, it's not, it's it's not, not worth, worth the it, personal it's not price. worth the personal price, that's a very very grim situation you know democracy depends on on sharpened pencils but it also depends on civility and good quality civic discourse so uh, i just want to highlight the fact that on briefings we have our our housing and planning roundup which has just come out and then there's some stuff about um the gig economy and modern working practices uh, which is really interesting. And I, I've done a lot of work on social care. And so it talks about, like, what is good work? This is the government's response to the Taylor Review. Yeah. So we we're facing a kind of gig economy. We're doing that. How, how do councils who have responsibility for skills prepare people for that yeah. as they go ahead? And again, I, look, I find I think it's quite hard to be very optimistic about where we are right now. I think... Cheer up, Jonathan. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you've got the industrial strategy. I had a meeting in the cabinet office the other day where they were talking about sort of how you drive local growth strategies, and I just thought this is insane. Why are we talking? Why are the cabinet office thinking about how they drive local growth strategies? The clues in the name, guys. They're local. local. It, do, it isn't. It isn't good if a local strategy is you know cookie cutter um, from the centre. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, do check out our briefings if you're a member. If you're not a member, be a member. You can find out about that on our website. Um, so one of the things that our members get every day in their email inbox first thing in the morning is LGIU Daily News, and there's always a, a really great selection of stories. Um, but the ones that have kind of caught my eye. One of our members once compared it to me. He said it's like a faithful hound arriving at the breakfast table every morning, which I thought was nice. <laughs> it's, but don't like dogs like they beg for scraps. Well, really well trained dogs bring your newspaper to you oh right of course <laughs> right yeah okay I... no no dog i've ever owned has uh, has come even close to that i'm no. a cat person sorry i did once have a dog that destroyed uh, used to destroy the london review of books and only the london review of books he was like a sort of anti-intellectual dog i once got a um i once got a letter from hillary clinton when she was first lady which my cat uh found and destroyed just went crazy on it <laughs> 
working for the Russians, obviously. Trump. <laughs> this is a long time ago. But anyway, so some of the things that I've first, they, first they came for our data, and then they went for our pets. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder why they want microchips and all the pets. Now we know. Um, so a sad story, and I think, and a, a very concerning story, is around a record number of slavery victims in the UK. So they think there there might be over five thousand potential victims of modern slavery and trafficking, which is an astonishing figure. Yeah. Now, these aren't all foreign. In fact, British nationals made up the highest number of cases, but that was for the first time. And I think we have shied away in the sector from really talking about modern slavery and the role that councils can play in this. And I know, you know, it's like it's a difficult thing to talk about and a difficult thing to do, but we have council officers and councillors going into bits of the community, into businesses and things like that. And I think there's more we can do. Uh, as tip-off or enforcement. I'm not sure what we should be doing at, about it at LGIU, but please write in and tell us. Um, I'd be really interested in this. Yeah, I mean, it, it'd be really good to think through what kind of coordination, best practice sharing, new practice development uh, would be useful for local government to try and tackle this. So, yeah, do let us know if you have any ideas about that. Yeah. Just to, oh, it's just, it's just nothing but bad news, it feels like. Um, staff report abuse or neglect at 99% of care homes. Right, shocking. You know, the, the headline is, is very, very depressing. When you look into the numbers underneath it, I think it's, it, it's still depressing, but not quite as bad as that suggests. So, you know, most of that, most of that abuse or neglect is neglect. Only 1% of carers are reporting threats of physical force, and only one carer in the whole country reporting an incident where a resident was assaulted, but 51% of carers are in this survey are reporting some form of abusive or neglectful behaviour. So, and that's like, that. it, and what, what concerns me about this is this is like in care homes, residential care homes. Right. Home care... As always, home care is much harder to work out what's going on, and... As always, we suspect a lot of really quite serious issues under the radar in, in WCW yeah. Because you're not having a colleague who can no. see what you're doing no. often. It's often loan workers. For me, what comes out of this is this is a system problem. So, so you know, some of the issues that keep bubbling away that we keep referring back to, you know, finance. You know, we know that social care is by far the biggest long-term pressure on local government finance. We know that there's a massive funding gap. What do we think is going to happen? You know, if you're underfunding social care it's going by, to have an by, impact. by you yeah. know, over a billion pounds a year or nearly two billion pounds a year, or whether, you know, we argue about the figures, it's gonna, that's going to come out somewhere. Of course, of course, underfunding isn't, shouldn't, can't mean people abusing residents, but it is almost inevitably going to lead to, to some form of neglect because the number of staff is smaller, they're stretched across a larger number of, of, of people being cared for, a number, larger number of residents. Yeah, the fabric of civic life that is stretched very thin. Absolutely, and and you know there is only so thin far you can stretch it, and we are going to see tears appearing in that fabric. And I, and I, this I think is one this of is the one tears, of, yeah. And, and we need to think about this as a as a as a canary in the mine, and you know, early morning, you know, what are we letting ourselves in for? Yeah, we we have to address this. So good news on sort of this front is that at the NHS is working with local authorities to improve housing health, um, to improve well-being of vulnerable residents. Um, 
I think this is a really important story. Uh, this is one that our district members will be particularly yeah. interested in, and they've been talking about rightly for years and years and years about the importance of housing contribution to health. But again, this is why. I mean, sorry, now I'm banging all the LGIU. You invite me on your pod, finally, and I start banging all my, my standard LGIU job, uh, uh, drums. But, but look, this is why you need, you know, why do we at LGIU argue for local government having a key role? It's not just because, you know, we're local government for local government's sake. It's because if you want to join up at a local level, strategically join up the factors that play into well-being, you need social care and housing and health to be integrated or to be taking joint approaches. You need to connect that with your green spaces, with your town centre design, community with your community support, development. Yeah. With the only body that has the sort of overview that enables it to draw all that together is local government, let alone the fact that it's the one that has the democratic mandate. Know, to, yeah. to tie in all our themes for today, the one that has the mandate. But that's why you need local government. And the problem is, as we keep trying to operate all these services through these separate silos and then join them up at the bottom. We need to be joining them up at the top and just having funding cascading down to local areas so that they can be, they can take these Make those decisions, decisions that are yeah, right for those areas. Absolutely. So um, we traditionally end on a bit of a, a, a lighter note. I have to say, this, this, this particular part has been either very worthy with elections or very depressing with funding. But, but elections are exciting. No, elections are exciting. Yeah, go vote. But, it, but it, that is important though, isn't it? Because there is a real danger. We need to be careful of this. There's a real danger. A lot of the stuff we're talking about, like, oh, the Russians hacked the US election. Yeah. Oh, the Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. But actually it does just make people think, hey, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do, it's all the same. There's no, 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 no. And we know, you know, look, only 30% of people vote in local elections. Yeah. And that's a tragedy. And your point that it's closer than you think, it really matters. Every vote counts. People have to get out there and vote. They do. They do. And, and it is actually, I don't know. I mean, I think it's actually really quite fun. I, I'm really sad that I don't get to vote here. Not just for the, you know, influence stuff, but the whole kind of, Thing of going into the polling place and because I don't get to do that in America either. Yeah. I, I just fill out an, a form and send it in the post. I take my kids. Yeah, you should. I do. I mean, they, they may not thank me for it, but they, they will thank they you later. They, they will like thank you later. Not. That's what I say about all my parenting choices. <laughs> it's all good for you in the long run. But look, there are also there are also some some good news stories. Yeah, absolutely. Well, interesting yeah, stories. interesting stories. So a new medieval village was found I love in Cambridgeshire. In Cambridgeshire. It, it's huge, right? There's a whole array of sites, apparently, that just completely transform our, our understanding of, of what ancient Cambridgeshire looked like. Which I assume was flat. It was flat then? Yes, no, it's still, it was flat then. It's You're flat. the geologist. Yeah, that, I right? know. <laughs> it's, it's all on the clay. Don't you have a master's in geology? No, it's just an undergraduate, just just a uh, bachelor's of science and, and, and geology. But look, the key point here, who found this? Archaeologists working for, for Cambridgeshire County Council. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So local government, not just shaping our future, but shaping our understanding of the past. Oh, that's a nice one. That's a nice one. I tell you who else is kind of shaping our understanding of the way things are going. Um, this is from uh, Cambridgeshire's rival, um, Oxfordshire. Uh, um, so somebody has been going around 
changing the road signs in Oxfordshire um, and adding uh, places which may not actually be there, like Narnia, Gotham City, Neverland. These what? Are all, yeah. They're not real? <laughs> Which they it, are in Oxfordshire. It feels like, an, uh, oh, and also um, direct drivers to Middle Earth. So, because, you know, like there's a Tolkien link with Oxfordshire anyway. There is so indeed. They have like all kinds but of. But I'm things. not sure there's a Gotham City or Neverland. Well, I don't know, Jane Barry? Kensington. Anyway. Uh, it's not just Oxfordshire-specific fictional sites. No, that it's fictional sites from to. all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the county council, did they did they find this amusing? Yes, they did, but only to a point. So they said it's, um, it's amusing but dangerous. It is distracting to drivers on the road, and you can't actually get to Narnia from Oxfordshire. Did, where, who, is it a mystery? <laughs> it's a mystery still, um, but I'm sure... C.S. Lewis, of course, also... Oxford Don. Oh, right. Yeah, so both Narnia and, and Middle Earth have, have Oxford links. C.S. Lewis was quite dismissive. I couldn't, of, I couldn't of, get of through Tolkien's either of fiction. their books. Well, I'm because quite he, dismissive of he, Tolkien's he, fiction. Well, I like both, but he, 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 C.S. Lewis saw himself as making serious theological points and thought that. Um, I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah, um, they can't see that. No. When we have the video version. <laughs> I just find Tolkien impenetrable. This, this is not. Yes. We yeah. may be losing listeners. You may you'll you'll be endearing yourself to half the population and, and um LGIU is neutral on Tolkien, by the way. But anyway, that brings us to the end of our podcast. How did you find your first one? It was very exciting. That's good, yeah. yeah. So as always you can find I everything. I hope you'll have me back. Well, I'm sure we will. I mean you're the <laughs> boss, right? You sign the checks. So um you can find everything that we've mentioned uh today on yeah. our website. And key messages, I guess. If you have any responsibility for, for election communications Council Communications for January, do check out what we have on the website around that. Absolutely. And so I'd encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. You can listen to us on SoundCloud. You can subscribe via iTunes. And um, any kind of podcast app that you've got, just search for LGIU Fortnightly. And um, and that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And thanks for listening. (laughs) 